0: Everyone benefits when women have more money.
1: Hello and welcome back to the podcast. Today, I'm speaking with a very special guest, Ashley Feinstein Gersley, who is the author of Financial Adulting, a guide that breaks down everything you need to be a financially confident and conscious adult. She is also a money coach, author of the 30 day money cleanse, and the founder of the Fiscal Femme, a money platform on a mission to end inequality through financial well being. Hey, Ashley, welcome to the podcast. Hello, thank you for having me. Of course, I'm so excited. I have been wanting to do an episode all about the basics of what you need to know to manage your money, and I knew that you would be the perfect person for this episode, so thank you for being on. I'm honored. Yeah, so before we dive in, can you tell us a little bit about your background and what you do? Yes, I am, I call myself a money coach or a financial educator,
0: and I founded a company called The Fiscal Femme that I started it started as a blog about 12 years ago now, which is wild. (laughs) And I have I wrote a book called the 30 day money cleanse. And my most recent book is called financial adulting. And it came out in March.
1: Nice. Yeah, I started as a, a blog as well. So I know how things can transition very quickly into much bigger, bigger projects, which is exciting. Yes, so and congrats it's cool. looking on your back, success. it makes
0: sense, but looking forward, you have no idea
1: what's yeah, coming. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that's really cool. So I know the fiscal femme is all about helping women become wealthier. So in your opinion, why is that so important? Oh my goodness, for so many reasons. I'd say first, everyone
0: benefits when women have more money. There's some compelling statistics that women give 90% of their wealth back to their families and communities. And that number, I think it's 30, 35% for men. And Mm, for the women themselves, huge difference. So, yeah. So, just even thinking about that, you know, families benefit, societies benefit. Companies do better when they have more diversity in their management and on their board. So, I'd argue the and when women are, so it's, full scope of who benefits and then also wealth gives us freedom in our choices and where we work in our relationships being being able to leave a relationship where we're not happy or worse and just our time in general um and then also just that society has very little safety nets and support for women and mothers and a lot of solutions to make life work require wealth So those are some of the things I think about, but it it's definitely very important to me.
1: Yeah, I agree 100 percent. And I know you have a background in finance, right? That was what you did as part of your corporate job. Yes. And yeah. So I guess what were the steps that you took to repair your relationship with money and learn how to build wealth for yourself? It's a great question. Well, so when
0: I I think about back to where my relationship with money came from. And for me, it really aligns with a first money memory I have, which was basically my parents gave me an allowance and they did a cool structure where we saved a third, gave a third and got to spend a third. And I wanted this horseback riding outfit and I put the (laughs) cash in... And it was for a doll. And I ripped out the page, circled it, and put the cash in an envelope and just sent it off. And I don't know if I addressed it. I don't know why I didn't ask an adult for help. But I never got the outfit. And I just remember thinking, I don't want to deal with this. This is this do- this money stuff doesn't work. <laughs> like, I saved up for a long time. I didn't get the thing. And so that's kind of the relationship. And I'm sure many other things inform that. But that was kind of the relationship I had with money going into... My first job. And of course, that I had a lot of privilege to be able to do that. Many people can't ignore money until they're in their 20s. It's a necessity to put food on the table and pay their bills. Mm-hmm. But repairing it for me was really looking at it and understanding what I had, where it was going, and also reframing how I viewed money and dealing with it because I thought it was this chore or this thing that would restrict me or limit my fun, but it's. Mm-hmm. It, I started viewing it as an act of self-love and seeing that, oh, it's giving me- I love that. Yes, peace of mind. It's giving me, I'm having less guilt or experiencing less guilt when I'm spending. I know how much I can spend, so there's a lot less worry. I can build in the things that are important to me. So I started viewing it as this, this gift rather than something that was something I wanted to avoid.
1: Right. Yeah, I love that. And were there any resources that you used to kind of cultivate a more positive mindset when it came to money or how did that happen?
0: Yes, that's a great question. It definitely was a process and it's as it continues to be a process. I don't course, think yeah. we ever arrive or are, you know, completely financial adulting. It's more of the the actions we take. And I also noticed that sometimes, so for example, when I started my money journey, I I was very spendy and then i became really frugal and now i'm spending more but in a very intentional way so i do think it's about what we need and it's kind of like a constant checks and balances and shifting and adjusting because life changes our priority changes the world around Mm -hmm. us changes but at the time i read a lot of books and articles and this was about 12 years ago and i do remember thinking wow this information is very unnecessarily daunting. A lot of it's boring. A lot of it is written by old white men. So that's kind of what stood out to me about the resources. And I really started adapting what I was learning to work for me. And mm-hmm. more now, it's incredible to see all the different voices in the personal finance space and all of the perspectives that are more like self-loving, non-judgmental, values-based that are some of the things that I started taking away and making part of my money journey.
1: Yeah, yeah, I love that. There's definitely a lot of criticism when it comes to money online. So I think it's good that there are so many spaces now, you know, whether that's on Instagram, TikTok, wherever, where people are just sharing, you know, you can enjoy life while also achieving these financial goals. You don't have to like limit yourself (laughs) too much, you know? Right. Some of the things I've heard, oh, it's awful.
0: Exactly. Right. And I remember thinking, I'm not going to do that, but I'll try this, you know? (laughs) And so I was taking the parts that were helpful and not the parts that just felt shame.
1: Yeah, exactly. Cool. So what are some steps that someone should take to start getting their financial life in order? I think I would start with what I call
0: the four components of being a financial adult. So a financial adult to me is someone who takes small, consistent steps that lead to big results. And I think that's so important. So I know that you're saying what steps should someone take, but making sure they're manageable because I think with our finances, with our health, all these different areas of our lives, we we think oh i just have to wake up and be a different person or i'll make a big yeah. goal or a new year's resolution and <laughs> i'll stick with it but that really sets us up for failure because it's too big of a jump so just knowing that okay i can break this down into something that feels manageable and just want to be taking these steps every single week and i'll look back and say wow this is this is really added up to something so that's the mm-hmm. first thing i'd say and then the second part of being a financial adult is to know what's happening with your money. And that sounds very simple, but it's actually...
1: No, I feel like this is so important. (laughs) It's
0: really profound, right? And it takes work because the income part is usually easier. There's a few streams coming in, what's hitting our Mm -hmm. bank account, but it's what's going out, what are we spending, what's going to our goals that takes more work to track. And so that is a big part of it. And so starting there with the steps and that could be, Mm -hmm. doesn't have to be looking at everything you spent this month. If that feels daunting, it can be, you know, I'm very curious about this one category because I feel like I might spend more than I think in that category and looking at that category for one week or Mm. whatever it is that makes taking a look at what's happening More manageable. And not only the inflows and outflows, but also the what you have and where, more of that balance sheet or net worth view. So, Mm. what you own, all of your accounts, your investment accounts, your bank accounts, even, even things that you own that have value. If you could sell things for money, you can include them in that equation as well. And then what you owe. And that could be what you owe as far as credit cards, student loans. A mortgage, what you owe your friend, all of those ki- things can go there. But that's kind of the snapshot: of what's happening with our financial situation. And for mm-hmm. me, I've noticed it. Looking at that, this snapshot keeps me honest because maybe I have more money in my checking account, but my credit card bill is higher. So yeah. I actually don't have more money than than I did before. And so there's we. It's just very easy to trick ourselves and feel like. Or it could be the opposite, making ourselves feel like we haven't made progress when we really have. So that's mm-hmm. the s- second part. And then the third part of financial adulting is to have plans that we feel confident in. So not only what is actually happening, but what we want to happen in the future. And I, when I initially have said that, people say, you know, I feel kind of confident in my plans, but I don't feel like I know everything down to the scent. And I think. Mm-hmm. It's really important to understand that so many of our goals, especially, especially long-term goals, there are so many things about them that we don't know. If we think yeah. about like retirement, we don't know how long we're going to live. Nobody knows that. Or <laughs> oh <my laughs> um, what inflation will be, or what our investment returns will look like until we get there. So confidence in our plans just means that we're checking in on them, even if you're saving up for a vacation, right? We can guess what the flight price will be. We can do research, but until we actually book, We'll be needing to adjust that plan. So it's a lot of checking in and adjusting um, Mm -hmm. and, and also checking in on what's important to us. There might be a goal that was really important last year that we're feeling less connected to this year and maybe we don't want to have that as our number one priority. So having that plan... And then the fourth component of being a financial adult is understanding the critical context of equity and personal finance, that if you are mm. a woman, if you are a person of color, if you have a disability, if you're a mother, that impacts every single area of your finances. And if you identify multiple things there, then you're, it's compounded. So I think that's important for people to acknowledge their privilege, especially in the personal finance conversation. Because yeah, for sure. if, if we're all comparing ourselves to each other, but one person had their student loans pay, paid off and had the college paid for, and someone else's home is automatically worth less, like, we have to be talking about it and understand it. So it really takes a lot of the shame and blame out of personal finance as well.
1: Yeah. I love that you mentioned that because a lot of people don't consider the fact that being a member of these specific groups can impact your finances in a variety of ways. We could go on for hours probably talking about it.
0: Yes. So yeah, and, I and appreciate it, it, you doing that. In my book, the it was so like pervasive that every single chapter is a different personal finance area and it impacted every single area. And then if you imagine your income's impacted, your interest rates impacted, your debt amount is impacted. So it all is connected and exacerbates it.
1: Yeah, exactly. So one of the things you mentioned was your goals and maybe those goals have changed or shifted over time. So how can someone get clear on what their money goals are? So I'd start with just listing out the things
0: that you want. And what I've noticed for most of us, and it's that most of us are not motivated by stacks of money. And it's great if you are, that's (laughs) perfectly fine, but it's what we're going to do with that money that gets us excited and that has us want to have financial well-being to achieve those goals. And I typically work backwards. So what will that goal cost? And then by when do I want to achieve it? And if I want to achieve it by that time, what do I want to be putting aside every paycheck, every week, every month to hit that number? And then if it's a longer term goal, we want to be investing that money and have it grow for us to make it easier or possible to achieve that goal. And so chapter three of the book's all about goals because a lot of the times, just there's big questions around what will this cost? And mm-hmm. like, what does it cost to start a family or what does it cost to retire? Or what does it cost to take time off to travel? Um, so that part is really important to map out. And then other thing, and this applies to a lot of big goals, is that just because we can't contribute as much as we want to towards the goal doesn't mean that if I, so, for example, if I'm putting $5 a week towards my home fund. That doesn't mean it's going to take me a thousand years to save up for a home.
1: <laughs> a lot sometimes of times it feels <laughs> like it. <laughs> exactly.
0: Or it might, and it might feel like it. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> but a lot of times our goals are exponential or our progress towards our goals. So mm-hmm. sometimes it can feel looking at those numbers of what the goal will take can almost demotivate us because they're so big and daunting. So mm-hmm. in that case, I think it's helpful to know that number, but to more focus on the small steps and know that these small amounts can add up over time and that all of these different habits that we're building with these weekly steps tend to kind of snowball. And what we're doing next year, you might not even believe that you're doing that based on what was happening last year.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. And I know you mentioned, you know, for longer term goals, we should be investing that money. But investing can be really confusing for a lot of people They think that they need a lot of money to get started investing, which I know is not true at all. So can you share some of the basics of investing that every woman should know? Yes. It's a
0: very big topic. We could do like multiple (laughs) talks about this together, but I'd say a few things. So like you mentioned, you do not need a lot of money to invest, especially with the different apps that are available. And there's, you can start investing with $5 even. And I do think, so there's... Generally, it's recommended, and I agree with this, outside of retirement, we want to have a few boxes checked before we put a lot of our savings towards investing. We want to have our rainy day fund so that we're protected in case of an emergency. We want to have maxed out our 401k matching because that's like 100% return on that money. We want to have paid off high interest credit card debt and be investing for our retirement. But- just because we don't have those boxes checked doesn't mean that we can't start investing and set aside mm-hmm. money to almost learn how to invest. Because I think there is a tendency, and I see this more so in women, that we want to really understand everything before we do it. And yeah, you know, we, and it's it's smart, right? We work hard typically for our money. We're making less <laughs> than men for the yeah. same job. Like we want to be mm-hmm. smart with it but it's we're never going to know everything and there's certain things that you need to know and there's a ton that you don't and so i find that it, by just getting started learning you could read you know thick books and still not know <laughs> how to actually you know hit buy and what that feeling feels like so even if we don't have those boxes checked we can start investing a fixed amount right now like say i put aside $100 $250 to learn And then when I do have those boxes checked, I am ready to like amp it up and put more money towards it.
1: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And let's go back to those boxes that you mentioned. So (laughs) first one was a rainy day fund, right? Yes. How much should people be saving for that fund? So
0: I have, I break it up into two parts. So the minimum rainy day fund is kind of the like one month of expenses, $1,000, just that minimum amount we want to have in cash in case of an emergency. And then there's more like, what's the ideal rainy day fund? And Mm -hmm. it depends on your situation. For example, in your industry and in that market, maybe you expect it would take three months to get a new job, but someone else, it might take a year. And so that would impact how many months they want to have saved. Um, the other thing I think that's interesting that we kind of always assume that our spending stays the same in the case of an emergency. And as... it's mm. a good point. As morbid as it is, like, it is helpful to think about a few emergency situations and think about how many months would make you feel comfortable and how you'd want to be living. Because maybe you'd be fine with not doing some of the things you're doing in that situation. Or maybe you say, you know what, I want to live the same way. I want to keep traveling. I want to do my extra things. And so I want to have that extra buffer saved. And as much as we plan, the pandemic really showed this. Until it happens, it's hard to know how we're going to feel. And so in a case of an emergency and, and or you lose your job or there's a round of layoffs, you might notice, oh, I feel like I don't have enough money saved. And that's a really good indicator that you might want to up the number of months or that you want to check in on that number. So it's typically recommended three to six months of expenses and i think it's important to think about what those months look like if it's going to just be your rent bills and some food or mortgage Mm -hmm. your bills and food or if it's going to be your regular typical life
1: yeah i've never thought about it like that because you're right certain emergencies will require you to spend more than you typically would in a month so yeah i think that's a good point to call out
0: Right. And thinking and yes, thinking through those specific and you can't, of course, imagine every
1: emergency situation, but yeah, um, a few that are on the radar. Hmm. Yeah, exactly. So uh, what were the other ones? I want to make sure we cover them before we move the on. The other ones <laughs>
0: were maxing out 401k matching and oh yeah, putting money towards retirement.
1: OK, so why is it important to get that 401k match?
0: So 401k matching is money that your company is giving you. Or it's really part of your total compensation, but it's when you put a certain percentage of money into your retirement, your company matches it. So it's typically it's given in a form of a percentage, like 3%. So if you put 3% in your retirement account, your company will put an additional 3%. If you put 5%, they'll still put 3%. But if you put 1%, they'd put 1%. So <laughs> that you want to get that match money, and that goes directly into your 401k, Um yeah. So that's how matching works. And it's typically offered as part of your your benefits or a compensation package at work, if you have it.
1: Yeah. I think a lot of people have heard the terms free money when it comes to 401k matching. So it's like, you might as well get that <laughs> at exactly. a minimum. So yeah, that's like the bare minimum of what you should be investing.
0: Right. It's whatever is motivating. If free money is motivating, then think of it that way. Or if Missed money, like this is actually mm, part of your yeah, compensation. Yeah, that's a good way to think about it.
1: <laughs> wow, Either. that hurts me just thinking about it. <laughs> <laughs> right. If I'm missing out on money that is owed to me, then I definitely want to get that. <laughs> right. Imagine your company getting to keep more. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's super motivating. I like that. Yes, I think oh, yeah, retirement was the other
0: one, and then
1: paying off high interest credit card debt. Oh yes, and I know we were planning to get to that during this conversation. So yeah, what? debt payoff strategy do you recommend and why? Let's start so, there.
0: Yes, it's a great question. So I think with debt paydown, I typically talk about a combo of one or three different methods. And as I go through them, I would think about your motivation and what will work best for you. Because that's the point is we want to be motivated, we want to be excited. And depending on the debt you have and what it looks like and how you feel about it, one of these methods might work better. So the first one is one that I came up with when I was working with clients who maybe had a loan from a parent or a loan from a friend. And while it had zero interest, it caused a lot of emotional strain for them. So I call that mm. the emotional method. And it's if that that loan or piece of debt causes you emotional pain or stress, like you might decide to prioritize it even though it's not costing you money and interest. So that's the first method. The second is the snowball method, where you pay off the debt with the smallest balance first, Mm -hmm. because it feels just so good to cross that piece of debt off your list. Plus, once you pay it off, you can put that payment towards your second priority piece of debt. For the snowball method, you prioritize your smallest pieces of debt first. And then the third is the interest rate method, which is paying off the debt with the highest interest rate first, because it's technically costing you the most money. So sometimes mm. it works out that the smallest piece of debt has the highest interest. And and the emotional method doesn't just have to be with family and friends. It could be with a bank or a student loan company that you have had a horrible experience with and you just want it to be gone. You know, So it yeah, could be that, that, that too. But sometimes it's very clear which one comes first. And sometimes it's, we, sometimes I'll make a plan with someone and we'll, make a priority list and when they go to put the extra money towards debt priority number one they realize it's not actually their priority number one and that's yeah. okay as long as you check in and
1: say okay i thought i wanted to
0: put it here but i want to put it here why mm-hmm. is that
1: yeah yeah exactly and i know you mentioned that it's important to pay off high interest credit card or debt was it high interest credit card debt or just high interest debt in general i know i credit feel cards like high interest debt but it's
0: typically credit cards yeah. that are the ones mm-hmm. that are yes yes
1: Yeah. So what would be considered high interest? So for the book, I
0: interviewed a bunch of investing experts and they tended to say if your student loan, because typically student loans are in this range, credit cards are typically always in the range of pay them off before investing. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But if your student loans are 7% interest or less, then it can make sense to invest because over the long term, over like the last 30, 50 years, the market or the S&P 500 has returned, like, I think it was um, 8.2% net of inflation over those periods. So over the long term, if you're earning that much, it will make sense to invest over payoff loans. The thing is, I think it's important to consider what's your relationship to your debt, because I know people who are fine with keeping Student loans, for example, as just this long term debt payment. It doesn't bother them. It's almost like a car payment and they live their lives. They buy homes. They do all the things and just pay it slowly. And then other Mm -hmm. people, it drives them bananas and they just want to pay it off as aggressively as possible. So I think how you feel is important. And then also, it's important to know that you don't really know what's going to happen in the market in the year or two years or three years that you decide to pay down your loan instead of invest or invest instead of pay down your loan. So it might yeah. not end up being one of those average 8% years. It might be a year where the market's down and you invested, it and it's you know, a bummer. So I think considering that in the short term, we really can't know what the market is going to do when we're making that comparison is important too.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel like I kind of waver on that. You know, I want to invest more, especially because I'm still young, technically. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I have longer to invest, so I want to put as much money as possible towards my investments. And so I just think, oh, well, my student loan interest rates are really low. They're less than 7%. So I'm in no rush to pay them off. But then I'm like, well, if I paid them off, I'd have more money to put towards investing. So yeah, definitely go back and forth.
0: Yes. And I think that's a really, I'm so glad you shared that because I think we often think of personal finance and money management as this very mathematical thing, Mm -hmm. but so many times it's, it's really more of an art and that we're adjusting. And maybe right now you say, you know what, the market is very volatile. I'd rather put, or the market's really low, right? I'd rather invest now and yeah. put paid down my student loans a little slower. And maybe you check in, you know, and um, change. But I would say because we're emotional, when it comes to and each of us is different. But I just know me that as much as I know that the market will, on average, earn 8% or mm-hmm. when I'm watching the news, and things are dropping rapidly, like that I can still feel that panic or worry. And so it's important for me to know that in making those types of decisions because it will impact them.
1: Yeah, yeah, definitely. And along those same lines, I know an important aspect of paying off your debt, regardless of whether it's credit cards, student loans, whatever, it impacts your credit score. So can you explain a little bit about what credit scores are and why they're important? Yes.
0: So our credit scores are supposed to tell lenders how risky it is to lend us money, so how likely we are to pay them back. And we're assigned a number typically between 300 and 850. The higher, the better for the score. And our credit scores are used for a lot of things. So first, they allow us to take out debt. So to get a credit card, to buy a home, to buy a car. And then not only do they impact if we're able to, they impact the interest rate that we get when we do take out debt. And the larger the debt, Or the larger difference in interest rate, it could have a really big impact on the amount we're paying overall for whatever the thing is. Um, And then also, I think I was surprised to find that often when we're going to rent an apartment, our landlord might check our credit. Employers check and credit our credit often. Mm -hmm. Maybe not often, but like I want to say thirty percent of the time or something. mm -hmm. It's happened to me before. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's um, it is a useful. Number to have, and it comes into our lives often.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, what are some ways that we can increase our credit scores? Yes. So, the two most commonly used credit scores are the
0: FICO score and the Vantage score. And what the good news is, is I think, regardless of how someone is evaluating your credit, a lot of the same things apply. So, it, they might be slightly different percentages or have different weights, but generally, all of the things i'll list are things that are going to be beneficial to your credit regardless of who's who's um looking at it. So, mm-hmm. one of the things that i thought was really interesting is one of the quickest ways to get your score up is to remedy errors on your credit report. And we have three credit reports through the cre- three credit agencies, Experian, TransUnion, and Equifax. And this is not your credit score, but it's the information that goes into your credit score. So it's very important information. And I've heard up to 80% of these credit reports can have the wrong information. And sometimes, I know, sometimes the information doesn't impact our credit, but sometimes it does. I've had someone who had someone else's loan who wasn't theirs on their credit report, and that person wasn't paying on time. So it was negatively Mm. impacting Their score, and it wasn't even their loan. So, that's a very quick way to remedy, to increase your score is to fix one of those errors. And you can download your credit reports once per year for free at annualcreditreport.com.
1: So, that's that's one way.
0: And then also, this is not necessarily how to increase your score, but two myths that drive me nuts are (laughs) um, that it hurts your credit score to check your score. So, you can check your score as much as you want, and it will not impact your score. The, a hard inquiry or when you're taking out a loan or when a credit card company checks your score, that is a hard inquiry and that can impact your score for around 12 months. The other myth that I hear, which is very expensive, an expensive myth, is that you have to keep a balance on your credit card to improve your score. And, yeah,
1: I definitely heard this one a lot. Yeah.
0: It's like, I don't know, this one gets passed on and it makes credit card companies a lot of money <laughs> uh, because yep. when we hold a balance, we're paying that high interest rate. And sometimes people are holding a balance just to have a better score and they could be paying off that balance. So that is a myth. You do not have to hold a balance. That does not improve your score. It actually, when I'll talk about some of the ways to increase your score, does the opposite.
1: Oh, interesting. Yes.
0: So- The biggest things to increase your score is having on-time payments, and that could be setting up automatic payments so that you don't miss a payment, but making payments on time is the biggest factor in our credit score. Um, Another thing, if you can, to keep your balances low, part of our our credit score is the amounts owed. So there's a credit utilization calculation, which is Mm -hmm. the amount that we're using of our credit cards divided by our limit. And even if we pay our credit cards off in full every month, they might check when it's at its highest balance. So yeah. just because we pay off in full does not mean that it is a zero utilization. But lo- the lower typically is better here because the idea is that we're not using a lot of our credit and we're not—it's not as a high risk that we're not going to pay it off.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And then generally, as we pay down our debt and use those those three methods we talk, talked about, we'll see our score. Improve, and then the others they're less impactful. But if we have older accounts, keeping those accounts open, there's mm-hmm. some there's some calculators online where you can see what that will imp how that would impact if you close an older account. And sometimes the impact is small. And so if it is an account that like it's a card you don't use or don't like, and it would really simplify your life, I do recommend checking those calculators, especially if you don't need your credit in the near term, because it could make your life a lot easier, potentially less expensive if the card, you know, you're paying a fee on it or something, Mm -hmm. and it might not impact your credit that much.
1: Yeah. And then if you're looking
0: to build your credit and you don't have, for example, let's say another way to build credit is to open a credit card. But if you cannot Mm -hmm. do that, you can open up a secured card. Which Oh yeah, can you explain that? Yes, a secured card is kind of like a It's kind of like a debit card in the sense that let's say I want to open a $200 secured card, I would give the bank $200 and then they give me a credit card with a limit of $200. So it's a way to build trust and you just mm-hmm. want to make sure that they're reporting this to the credit agencies so that it is something that's building your credit and that there aren't a lot of fees associated with the card, but that is a great way to, to build credit. You can also ask if I have the secured card, how long do you think till like I can open a credit card? And so you build up to that. And then yeah. another way is to be an, become an authorized user on a family or friend's card. Yeah. But it's important to know that when you become an authorized user, you are now tied to their credit. So if yep. you <laughs> want it to be someone who you trust, their financial habits, because if they don't pay their credit card, or are over 30 days late, for example, that will impact your score now too. So that's yeah. the, the kind of the risk with that. And you have to know someone who would be open to that, which is another thing.
1: Yeah, exactly. I can't say I know too many people who I would add as an authorized <laughs> user on my credit card. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's a but big yeah, task. Yeah. yeah, for sure. My parents got me my first credit card, I think. I'm not sure if there's an age limit for when you can get a credit card. I must have at least been 16. But definitely before I went off to college at 18. And so I have a credit card that's like very old um, as far as credit history, which I keep open. And that's where my Spotify bill goes. And it just, you know, pays automatically every month so that it stays open. But yeah, those are really good tips.
0: (laughs) Right. And then if you see on your bill anything other than the Spotify charge, you know, something's going on with the card, but otherwise you don't have to do anything with it.
1: Exactly. Yeah. I don't think about it. Don't use it for anything else. So that's great. Yeah. And that was such, like, such a gift for them to do that for you. Yeah, exactly. I know that I was fortunate because I graduated and was able to buy my first car without worrying about credit because I had really great credit by then. So, That's yeah, amazing. it's definitely a gift. So, something else I wanted to talk to you about was insurance, mm. and this has come up a not a lot, but I've seen recently various things in the news. Especially if young people, this is kind of morbid, of course, but <laughs> young people pass away. They start these GoFundMe profiles or pages to raise money to cover funeral expenses or whatever. And it's kind of sparked some conversations with friends of mine, and I've asked them, you know, do you have insurance? I have insurance, you know? Are you thinking about this now, even though we're still young? So I'm curious what your thoughts are. Should everyone have an insurance policy and, can you explain the different types of policies that are out there? I know there's term, there's whole life.
0: Yes. Yeah, let's so, get into that a little bit. Definitely. So first, something you mentioned about the funeral expenses. I There's a chapter in the book on estate planning. And it's funny mm-hmm. because we might think that estate planning is just for very wealthy people, but we all have an estate, no matter how much we have or how much we owe. It's just what's happening with, our assets and the things that we owe when we pass. And Mm -hmm. so having a plan for that is, or at least knowing what would happen in the state you're in is really helpful to decide if you want to put something on top of that, like a will or some type of like essentially, and having some other important documents.
1: Right. I'll digress, but- um, We'll keep it simple for now. (laughs) Yeah.
0: (laughs) So read that chapter, but- (laughs) for life insurance I'd say if there's some situations where it really makes sense to have it if if someone depends on you financially it could be a child it could be an elder dependent makes so much sense to have life insurance so that they're they're taken care of should you pass mm-hmm. another situation if you bought a house with a partner or with a friend mm. if the other person couldn't make the payments if you passed that's another reason to have life insurance because if then they would have to sell the house if you passed away or would have to take on more debt to to make the payments work. And then another reason people get life insurance is for debt that doesn't kind of die when you pass away, that gets passed mm-hmm. on so that the burden to the person behind that is going to be paying for that is taken care of. And you can yeah. think about that the same way with funeral expenses or just understanding you know, if I have enough in my savings account to cover what that would look like, then, but I don't have meet any of these other criteria, then I feel good about it. And the two types generally of life insurance, there's term life insurance and, a per- and permanent life insurance, which whole life, variable, universal, there's all different types. But term life, you pay a monthly premium for a certain amount, insurance, death benefit. So when it could be 200000 it could be a million. But when you pass away, as long as it's during that term that you're paying your premium, there is a beneficiary who receives that amount of money tax free. Um, if you do not die during that period, you don't get any payout kind of like, and it's funny because there's a lot of people who will say like, it's a waste of money if you don't die. But (laughs) Tiffany Aliche said like, it's like car insurance. You don't want to use the insurance. You are hoping that you don't get in a
1: crash, you know? Yeah. Um, no one complains about wasting money with that. Exactly. (laughs) And it's
0: the same. You, I think being alive is the bigger win, right? (laughs) I think so. Yeah. And um, permanent policies are called permanent because they don't go away. And that sounds great. Like you build this cash value that you can borrow from. And once you stop paying, when you pass away, you still get that whatever that amount is. But it's so much more expensive and the premiums are so much higher. And so for the majority of people, term life insurance is the best option. And if I have a, like, I've had fun modeling this out with people, but if you invested the difference in the cost of the premium, because it's so much higher, um, Mm -hmm. and you'd have so much more money than if you use that money to pay for insurance. So the experts that I interviewed for the book, a few examples of people who it makes sense to have permanent policies is if you have a high value, illiquid, like non-cash estate that you're mm. passing on like a family farm, or a multi generational business where what you're leaving is not in cash, but someone would have to pay the estate taxes in cash. Mm, That's a yeah. situation. Or if you have a child or family member who has special needs, and they will need expensive care throughout their life, even after so the term wouldn't work, because after the term is up, they still need that insurance, unless you save up enough to, to cover their needs for life. But that right. could be another example when it might make sense to get it. So um, I do think because the commissions are really high on permanent policies that a lot of people are sold permanent insurance policies who are, they are not a mm. fit for,
1: which is yeah, angering. Oh, yeah, for sure. And I feel like they honestly target people who are just not as educated on this stuff. And it's very unfortunate. I know I have so many family members that have been tricked. I'll just say it. <laughs> Tricked into purchasing these permanent policies, and I try to educate them and tell them like, no, you need to go with term, and here are the reasons why this would probably be a better option for you. So yeah, it's and it's
0: honestly like the trick. It's so tough because they have these presentations. These things are so complicated. It's hard to like Mm -hmm. pull it apart. What you're even doing? But then if you just take flat numbers of like, this is what it would take to get the same size term policy. And this is how much I'm paying in. And if I invested that amount, like that's how it makes sense to me, because all of the, Mm -hmm. you know, borrowing against it and paying it back, it gets just so convoluted that I think it's hard to pick apart what the value is.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. And again, I guess you can think about that as missed money too. if you're, you know, investing in a whole life or so called quote unquote, investing in a permanent (laughs) policy, how much you're missing out on.
0: Right? I love that. Yeah. Make like yeah. everybody worry about how much they're
1: missing out on as their motivator. <laughs> I know. That's, that's the theme for this episode. <laughs> 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 awesome. Well, those have been really great tips. Thanks for sharing and answering all of those questions. So one of the last things I normally ask my guests is what is a money lesson that you learned that you think would be important for our audience to know? I know a lot of us say, oh, I wish I had known this sooner. It would have changed my life. I would have done things differently. So mm-hmm. yeah, what's, what's one of the most important lessons you've learned over the years?
0: Oh, can I do three?
1: Oh, go for it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay. so the, Well, because I thought of the lesson and then the things I wish I knew. So one oh, okay. thing I Perfect. wish I knew was that I used to think when, how you save money was you earn money, you live your life, and then there's money left over, and that's what you save. But what mm-hmm. I found out is there's never money left over. If I don't pay myself first. And it took me getting multiple raises, promotions, and I kept saying, hey, wait, there's still no money left over. What is going on? And there's just so our expenses very easily take up our bank accounts. And Mm -hmm. this is not for everyone, but for a lot of people, we have to pay ourselves first in order to save. So starting with that small amount, if you're thinking, Ashley, there's no way I can do this, start with the $5 a month, $5 a week, and then work your way up. But paying myself first, And then investing more in my company 401k or in my IRAs. I wish that I did that when I was younger. Like you mentioned, when Mm -hmm. you're younger, you have that benefit of time where our money can compound and grow. And I don't know anyone who looks back and is like, I wish I put less in my retirement. You know, (laughs) (laughs) I wish I prioritized this. So that I think a wish I knew. And then lesson, I think an issue with to step back. but I graduated from college, studied finance, worked in finance, and felt like very shameful that I didn't know more about money and personal finance. Mm. And I think one of in addition to that feeling horrible, one of the dangers of it is that we might trust other people to make decisions or trust their advice over trying to figure it out because we might think, oh,, well, I'm not gonna figure this out or I'm just bad at this or whatever mm-hmm. it is. And so something I did, in one of my first jobs is I took investment advice from a coworker who sounded very confident and it was a speculative investment in these like companies. And I just, if I had, and I remember when I lost money and it was a big amount of money to me at the time, I decided never again, like I'm going to figure that I realized he didn't know, he just sounded confident. And so to know that most of us Feel like we should know more, especially when we're starting our careers and starting our money journeys, that if we talked about it more, we'd realize that our best friend sitting across the table is feeling the same way, trying to figure it out, and that we have everything we need to figure it out and make decisions and probably better decisions than people who might just sound confident.
1: So. Yeah, yeah, that's so true. We definitely need to talk about this more. Yeah, I feel like maybe it's just because I'm in this space. I'm not sure. But I feel like people are opening up to speak talking about money more often. And having some of these conversations so that we all can learn from each other. So yeah. and it,
0: and I think to start the conversation, we often think like talking about money might mean I have to show you everything like Here's my debt, yeah. here's my income, <laughs> but it doesn't have to be like that. You can just share I'm paying down debt or I am trying yeah. to save more or mm-hmm. I'm trying to negotiate a raise. You don't have if it if that makes it feel daunting, like don't share the specifics yet. Don't it yeah. doesn't have to be or even just yeah, it can be very non-specific to start that conversation.
1: Yeah, exactly. Awesome. Well, this has been so helpful. Thanks again for joining me. Where um, can listeners find you online? Thank you
0: for having me. They can find me on all the socials at the Fiscal Femme. And the book, Financial Adulting, is at financialadultingbook.com.
1: Thanks for tuning in to the First Hustle Then Brunch podcast. If you enjoyed this episode or learned something new, I'd love if you subscribed and left us a review. Another way to support the podcast is to take a screenshot of this episode and share it on your Instagram story. Tag me at first hustle then brunch so I can repost it. Thank you so much for supporting the show and I'll see you in the next episode.